1: Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire, and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions, and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we have Dr. David Rendell with us. David has made his life's mission to be hilarious and helpful. He's a stand-up comedian with a doctorate in management. A class clown turned leadership professor who went from disrupting classes to teaching classes to disrupting companies and conferences around the world. After being criticized and punished his whole life for being hyperactive, David now channels his frantic energy to complete in Ironman triathlons and ultra marathons. He wears more pink than the average middle-aged man. Actually, he wears more pink than an eight-year-old princess. And in order to find out why, you'll have to get his book. David has a radical prescription for chronic dissatisfaction. Stop working on your weaknesses and start amplifying them instead author of The Freak Factor, which flips the culture of self-improvement on its head with stories of real people who have soared to success by embracing their uniqueness. Welcome, David Rendell. How are you?
0: I'm doing fantastic.
1: Well, great. We're so happy to have you on our podcast. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? Absolutely. All right. So David, let's start by telling us a little bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now.
0: Yeah, so my path to leadership was when I graduated from college with a degree in psychology, I took a job helping kids with disabilities to get job opportunities and was immediately put in a role as a supervisor and realized that that was going to be a challenge, that people wouldn't necessarily be ready to have somebody who was 21 years old managing them and that they'd be skeptical of my abilities. So I figured not only did I need to be good at it, I needed to be very good at it. So I started reading and studying and learning about how to be a better leader and trying to practice the things that I read. Eventually went on to get a doctorate in management and leadership as I gradually moved up through the ranks and started managing at higher and higher levels and managing more and more people. And even with that, though, found that a lot of that was academic and esoteric and not necessarily practical and useful. So then I wrote my own book called The Four Factors of Effective Leadership, where I tried to take the themes that I found consistently in the things that I was reading and the things that I thought were really helpful on a real level and try to put them all in one place. And so I started teaching leadership as a college professor. I was a management and leadership professor for about 10 years. And now I'm a speaker full-time, so I travel around speaking about managing people, managing yourself, and influence people in a different way than sort of by managing them in an organization, so lead in a way through leading people by changing their thinking and changing their thought processes.
1: David, you mentioned that you were put in a position of a supervisor, and you've experienced what a lot of us have experienced, where we're placed in leadership position but not really equipped to lead. That led you to write a book. How was that received in the education world?
0: Well, at the time, I wasn't specifically in the education world, but I mean, it was received very positively. I mean, people were happy to have something that was what I was trying to create, something that was simple, clear, practical, straightforward. For example, one of the things that frustrated me when I was studying leadership was I was reading this book called Bass and Stogdill's Handbook of Leadership, where they attempted to combine all the leadership literature that had ever been written, I mean, to the point that it started with Egyptian hieroglyphics and an explanation of what they were. (laughs) And so I had high hopes, right? Like, wow, this is going to help me. And then there were 15 pages in a chapter called the definitions of leadership. And their conclusion was, so we're not going to tell you what leadership is. We can't be entirely sure what leadership is. You have to sort of figure it out for yourself. And I found that really dissatisfying, right? How am I supposed to do something well when I don't know what it is? I don't know how to do it. I don't even know how to define it and no one can agree. And so I think the reception was really positive because I think people are looking for some answers. They're looking for some guidance. They're looking for some direction. And although I don't think I have all the answers, I think what I presented was these are four things you absolutely need. There might be more, but there's no less. These are absolute essentials. And I think that's a starting point for people that people found helpful.
1: And I imagine that it was well-received because people are hungry for things like this. Not just the heady academic, this is leadership, the one that you just described, but really social-emotional connection. So I'm curious, what are the four factors of leadership?
0: So each of the factors starts from the inside and moves out. So one of my main principles is that leadership starts with you. You can't lead other people unless Mm -hmm. you can lead yourself. So one of my favorite quotes from Peter Drucker said, people who cannot manage themselves for effectiveness cannot expect to manage their associates and subordinates. Key things that I saw, no matter what I was reading about leadership or personal effectiveness was, you have to be able to manage your own life. Too often as leaders, we're like, how do I get these people to do what I want them to do? And if you ask people, well, are you achieving your own goals? They're like, well, no, but I mean, how do I get these people to do what I want them to do? And the answer is get yourself to do it. So each of the four factors has an internal component and then an interpersonal component, like an inside and then an outside. So factor one is influence. You have to have self-discipline, have to be able to control yourself before you can influence other people. Factor two is integrity. You have to develop credibility and trustworthiness if you want to build trusting relationships. Factor three is inspiration. You have to have a strong sense of personal mission before you can inspire a shared vision in others. The last one is improvement. You have to be growing as a person Mm -hmm. and then developing others, but you can't develop others unless you're growing as a person. Unless you're learning and you're growing, you can't expect to help others to learn and grow.
1: Perfect. Now, how would you describe your leadership style?
0: That's a good question. I think early on, the mistake I made is my leadership style was very laissez-faire because I value a lot of freedom and autonomy, so I assumed everyone did. And so I gave people a lot of space, and I gave them a lot of room, and I gave them a lot of control. And that's good for some people, but a lot of people want structure and stability and clarity, and I wasn't providing that. I wasn't providing enough direction I wasn't involved enough. So I think early on it was too laissez-faire. I think my leadership style still leans in that direction. I try not to push too hard or tell people exactly how things need to be done, but I am more cognizant now of people's individual style and trying to make sure that to whatever extent it's possible, I adapt the way I approach them. Like, for example, I have three daughters, and they're all very, very different. And I don't treat them all the same, thinking that that's going to work. I try to adapt the way I respond to them based on their unique individual style. And so I think it's still relatively hands-off. I try to lead more from a standpoint of empowering and encouraging and supporting. You know, For example, if my daughter asks for advice, I don't tell her what she should do and then get upset if she doesn't do it. I right. present it as my perspective and my opinion and encourage her to you know, look at all the factors and make the best decision for herself. So I'm not incredibly directive. I'm certainly not a micromanager. Uh, if anything, I might sometimes give people too much space and not enough clarity, not enough direction.
1: And at the very least, give some expectations.
0: Yeah, and I think sometimes I have high expectations because I do for myself, but I don't always communicate those as effectively as I should. I think that's one of my challenges is I don't want to scare people by telling them what I expect, uh, but at the same time, I still expect it. And so one of the things I think that's changed about over time is being more comfortable saying for better or worse, this is the kind of person I am and this is what I expect. And this is what I'll make sure that I do. I'll hold myself to those standards. I'm going to practice what I preach, but this is what I expect of you if you're going to work with me.
1: All right. So can you tell us about a leader who inspired you?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I think one of the things I did in the book is I used a bunch of examples of leaders that inspired me. Probably one of the coolest experiences I got to have was I got to speak in India, and I got to see one of the ashrams where Gandhi spent a significant amount of time and before he began his famous march to the sea, which I believe was to protest the salt tax. And so I think Gandhi is probably one of the leaders that I admire the most, his willingness to sacrifice voluntarily. Um, He could have lived an easy life. He could have lived a privileged life. He could have lived a life where he benefited from British control in India. And instead, he took tremendous difficulty and pain upon himself in order to free people who couldn't save themselves. I think that sacrifice that discipline, the humility that he showed over time of instead of trying to push others down in order to lift himself up, he was willing to lower himself in order to lift others up. Mm -hmm. I think he's probably one of the most powerful examples. And especially in 21st century society, when you look at what we've just seen with the Me Too movement, Mm -hmm. and so many people who are just failing on the most basic level, not only are they not leading and inspiring and encouraging, they're assaulting and harassing and mistreating people, and they're selfishly using other people for their own gain and their own pleasure. I think it's hard to find good examples of leadership because so many people are kind of. Putting on one kind of show on the outside, and they're doing something different on the inside. And Gandhi was by no means perfect, but he at least, over a significant period of time, was able to sacrifice his own desires for the benefit of others, and at least in many ways, put other people first. I think that's one of the essentials of leadership is ultimately looking to serve other people and benefit other people and support other people as opposed to trying to just get things for yourself and accomplish your goals using other people as resources.
1: It's interesting because I was reading more about you and the thread that runs through your message is serving other people and helping other people. In fact, I thought it was pretty awesome that your life's mission is to be hilarious and helpful. (laughs) So tell us how that connects.
0: Yeah, so the helpful part started when I was a kid. I moved around schools a lot and there was only one person who was there consistently as we moved schools and who went to church with us. So I only had one core friend for my first 16 years of my life because we moved to four or five different schools in that same period of time. He was shot and killed in a hunting accident by one of my other friends on New Year's Eve when I was 16 years old. And watching the fallout from that, the pain and the suffering of what people went through, and then seeing some of those walls, those superficial walls that we put up come down and finding out some of the struggles people were having in their personal lives and their family lives was really powerful for me. And I was awakened to the fact that people need love, people need support, people need help. And that some of the things that I took for granted, you know, having a stable family life, for example, were exceptional, were not necessarily normal, and were gave me a foundation to serve other people. And so in that time of sadness and grief, realized that there was a bigger purpose than just having fun and hanging out with your friends and Being good at sports, and so that became my mission in life to help people. That's why I studied psychology. That's why I got a master's in psychology. That's why I worked in nonprofits and helped people with disabilities because my goal was to be of service. And the hilarious part is sort of the second part of the story. I always was in trouble in school for being disruptive and obnoxious and inappropriate um, and immature. (laughs) And now I get paid to make people laugh and to inspire people at conferences. And so that's the other part of what I learned about leadership is that sometimes our biggest weaknesses are also our biggest strengths. And sometimes the things that we think are the worst things about us and the worst things about others, the people we're trying to lead, our family, our friends, our employees are actually their best qualities. And so I learned that my desire to make people laugh, my ability to make people laugh, my ability to get people's attention teachers would say, oh, Dave, I guess you just want to be the center of attention. And now I'm a keynote speaker and I am the center of attention.
1: (laughs) So that speaks to what you talk about discovering your strengths through your weaknesses. Yeah. So
0: that's another kind of layer that I think we're missing when it comes to leadership. We're mostly focused on finding people's weaknesses and fixing them. We live in a school system, in a society, in an employment and corporate structure where There's a high value put on finding weaknesses and fixing them. We believe that you can sort of mold people into whatever you want them to be. And I think the one key lesson that I've learned about myself and about leadership over the years is that people do bring something distinctive to the table and you can't turn people into whatever you want them to be. I think people have unlimited potential for happiness and fulfillment and meaning, but I don't think you just turn people into things. We learned that a long time ago with B.F. Skinner. You know, he basically made the promise, if you give me a baby... And you tell me what you want, I'll give you back a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. I mean, we learned a long time ago that that really doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're too focused in our society on treating everyone the same, having the same goals for everyone, thinking that everyone can achieve the same things instead of adapting our approaches and adapting our goals and adapting our expectations to everybody as an individual. And so my freak factor concept is really about seeing that oftentimes the things we see as weaknesses are oftentimes strengths. And when the person's in the right situation, and when they find the right fit between who they are and where they are, those qualities that seem like their worst qualities, just like mine, are actually their best qualities. We don't have to turn weaknesses into strengths. We can discover that they are already strengths. We've just been misunderstanding the person and misunderstanding Mm -hmm. their qualities.
1: Well, you know, as a teacher of children with special needs, this really speaks to me. And I've had several conversations with successful people who say the same thing. Melissa Agnes, I interviewed her. She had anxiety issues. Well, she turned that into a business where she now assesses risk in different situations because she gets anxious about what could go wrong. I mean, it was genius. She turned that into, I guess, a superpower where now she assesses risks for organizations I had another author, David Burrs, he wrote How to Get to Great Ideas and he talked about his superpower having struggled with being bipolar. I also had another person on with OCD and that was his superpower. He's able to serve people because of this. He does deep research. And so this is really, really great information, especially as educators and especially in the school systems where we do see weaknesses and we try to gift it, whereas what you said really resonates to discover, you know, what's there. Now, the freak factor. So tell us where we can get this book.
0: Yeah. So it's on Amazon. It's on audible.com. You can listen to it. On my website, there's assessments that you can use to see how your weaknesses might also be strengths. And because so many of my audience members were either educators or parents, people kept asking for something for kids. So I wrote a book called The Freak Factor for Kids and then adjusted the assessment to be used with kids. So it's a shorter assessment with simpler explanations of the quality. So instead of saying organized, it says things like, I am very organized. I like to have everything in the right spot. And then also questions that kids and adults can use to discover their own strengths and weaknesses. And so, yeah, I created those resources because the biggest question people would have after my talk is, well, okay, how are my weaknesses a strength? What's good about this bad thing about me. I love that you shared that one about anxiety because I've give people examples. And I've been saying for years that if you have anxiety, you should be like an emergency management coordinator because <laughs> the problem is most emergency management coordinators aren't anxious enough, right? They're like, we're probably going to be fine. We probably won't get hit with a tornado. We don't really need to worry about that hurricane. We don't need to upgrade our levees. We don't need to worry about our bridges one of my favorites was somebody who was obsessive compulsive kind of like you were saying ocd Mm -hmm. and her job was she was the safety coordinator it was her job to go in and make sure that everything was just right and everything was safe and that no one was going to get hurt and she had an obsessive fear of germs and all sorts of other things and they were working in a job where things had to be sanitized and sanitary and all that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff Mm -hmm. and she was the perfect person for that job her weakness was a strength in that particular situation. So I think our school system, like you said, too often we focus and then we get parents focused on fixing those kids' weaknesses, fixing that disability, and then that becomes every conversation is about what's wrong with that kid, and no conversation is about what the upside of that quality might be, but also Mm -hmm. no conversation is about the kid's other upsides as well. And I think the kid starts to really develop a negative identity. We think we're helping them, but we're actually hurting them.
1: I've been in education for so long, and this is such a shift in my thinking, and I do parent workshops, and I also bring this to the table, conversations like this, which are really, really helpful.
0: Yeah, that's what I do. Organizations say, hey, can you talk to our teachers? Can you talk to our administrators? Can you speak to our kids? I mean, I've spoken to children as young as five years old. A lot of times, even when I speak to entrepreneurs now, you'd think their main focus was their business, but they say, hey, can you do a family and children event for us? For example, I was just at the Nashville Zoo, and I spoke for 45 minutes to the kids, talked to them about how their weaknesses could be strengths, and then they went off and did a zoo-related activity while I talked to their parents about marriage and parenting and how we can see the strengths and weaknesses of each other differently.
1: All right, so tell us, what is your website?
0: Yeah, so it's drendel.com. so D as in David, and then Rendall, R-E-N-D-A-L-L.com, drendle.com.
1: Perfect. So, Dave, what's the best advice you've ever received?
0: The best advice I've ever received was from my dad. He said, Control the things that you can control. There's a lot of things in life we can't do anything about. And when we get focused on those, we get what psychologists call generalized anxiety. We have this sense of unease, but there's nothing we can do about it. We're upset because oil prices are rising or because of gun violence or because of politics and Mm -hmm. when you control the things you can control you live a life where despite the fact that you can't control oil prices you can control your response to your children you can control The efforts you put in to have a better career. You can control what kind of food you put in your mouth. Uh, You can control how much exercise you do. And so I think that was a really helpful mindset for me to have. And I've always taken that with me. Like one of the reasons I run my own business is because that's something that I can have control over instead of complaining about a bad boss or a bad employer or how much I paid or whether I got a raise. Sometimes people go, I'm going to try to control the things I can't control, the things I can't accept. They sort of try to take a negative spin on the serenity prayer. So it's not that I'm taking a small view of the world because I am on a mission to change education and get people to see kids differently and treat them differently. I'm on a mission to change corporations and get people to manage people differently and treat them differently and engage with them differently. I'm on a mission to change the way people parent and I'm on a mission to improve people's marriages by showing people that weaknesses are strengths. So it's not that I have small goals, but then the question is, okay, if I want to change the world, what do I get started with? And I think sometimes people have such big concerns and they see those as sort of noble and they are, but Uh, they're so far out of reach uh, there's no connection between my daily behavior and those big goals and so i learned that from stephen covey he said you got to start from the inside out and that's the foundation of my leadership book so it's like okay well If I want to change the world, am I changing myself? Am I losing weight? Am I acting effectively? Am I writing my own book? Am I doing a good job at my job? Am I building effective relationships with my family? Am I starting with that foundation of personal effectiveness before I try to impact other people? So I think control the things you can control is probably the best advice that I've ever gotten.
1: It keeps you focused and not distracted for sure. Now, you mentioned changing things in education. Well, what would you change?
0: Oh, man. I think the goals. I think everyone's stuck in a system where you're measured on, did somebody go to college? You're measured on, did somebody get a good grade on the SAT? You're measured on, did somebody get good grades in your class? Did somebody do well on the AP test? we have all of these measurements that are designed to tell us whether the teacher's doing a good job, whether the student's doing a good job, when none of it really does any of that. And so I can't fault teachers and administrators for caring about what they've been told to care about and doing what they're doing. So what I guess I really wish for is a system where what we really cared about was matching the person and their potential to the best possible environment. Mm -hmm. And instead, we think that success is going to Harvard. We think success is getting a good SAT score. And so a long time ago, my job was to help students at first and then adults with developmental disabilities to get job opportunities. And what I realized ultimately was only two things matter. What does the person like? and what are they good at? And I think our school system has just gotten to the point where every class is supposed to matter. All around intelligence is valued more than anything else. We don't measure things like interpersonal skills, or we don't teach practical things like personal finance. And we think we're predicting who's going to succeed and who isn't, and we think we're giving people skills that are necessary to succeed. And oftentimes we aren't in most of the success that the most successful people have, uh, as far as I've been able to see, is not directly related to their education. It's related to other things. And so I think we're just really missing an opportunity to really truly help people be prepared for the world in which they live. So for example, school is from age five to age 18 through high school, And if you do well in school, the prediction is you'll do well in life. If you do poorly in school, the prediction is you'll do poorly in life. But school is one very particular environment And the world these days is made up of millions of potential environments, millions of potential job opportunities, millions of potential business opportunities where people can be professional poker players. And then we say things like, well, that's the exception. You know, what I have always liked to say is everybody's an exception. All education should be special education. And so that's what I would really change. I don't fault any of the people in the system. I think there's a lot of wonderful teachers. There's a lot of wonderful administrators. There's a lot of wonderful parents. I think everybody's feeling concerned strained by their need to prepare people for what they quote unquote think the real world is. And then the real world isn't what we really expect it to be. And people who succeed in the real world don't necessarily succeed because of their schooling. None of the things that I teach in The Freak Factor did I learn in high school, college, graduate school, or my doctoral program. No one taught me that weaknesses are strengths. Nobody taught me to amplify those weaknesses. Or effective leadership. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the things that are taught aren't realistic. Aren't Like I said, I mean, my frustration in studying leadership in school wasn't, wasn't realistic. It wasn't based on real situations and real people. It didn't have a lot of practical value. It was a lot of theory written by people who had never and were never going to lead anyone. And so I think we're separated from, we're disconnected from the realities of the real world. And yet we constantly use that as a stick in school, don't we? Well, if you're ever going to be successful in the real world, you got to turn your stuff in on time. You got to show up on time to class. You got to do this. You got to do that. And we're convinced that the real world is this mirage that we've created. And so what I've seen in the real world is there's an infinite number of possibilities to be successful. And also the number of skills that you need to be successful are really limited. You know, my wife is barely able to do math and she only passed the bare minimum class in college required for you to graduate. I mean, yet she's a very successful person because her life has nothing to do with math and the world is full of calculators and software programs. And it just isn't that important, and yet, once we teach kids to add, we think that algebra is crucial, and pre-algebra is crucial, and geometry is certainly essential, and if the really good, smart kids take calculus, and even if you don't go into math, it'll definitely be helpful. Well, that's not true. I took calculus one and two in college, and I got A's, and I have no idea what I learned. I never used any of it. It isn't helpful to me, and it certainly isn't useful for the day-to-day life of 98% of human beings. And so we just spend a lot of time and energy on a lot of things that really are irrelevant to real life. And then we don't measure and don't teach about a lot of things that are. And I think that's the biggest thing I would try to change about education.
1: I want to think about our listeners. And I'm not just talking teachers, I'm talking about administrators as well, who do believe this, but are kind of just Burdened with a lot of expectations or paperwork to do. So, what are some things that we can start to do to help steer this ship in a different direction?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. It goes back to my dad saying, control the things you can control. One of the things I talk about when I talk about stress management is one of the mistakes we make is we say, since I can't control everything, I can't control anything. And so I think what happens is, like you said, we do get overwhelmed. We do get focused on all the demands and all the difficulties. And so I think one of the strategies that I would recommend is just to realize how important small, simple things can be. So I had a resident director in college who asked me if I was going to apply to be a resident assistant. And I said, no, because I am not resident assistant material. And he changed my life in about 30 seconds Mm -hmm. by saying, Dave, everything that people see as wrong with you, I see as right. I see a lot of myself in you. And when everyone else sees a disruptive, difficult person, I see leadership skills. Mm. And he said, what you've been told are your weaknesses. He didn't say it in these exact words, but he said, are your strengths. And in that moment, I went from feeling like someone who was never going to succeed and didn't have what it took to succeed and who didn't have anything to really offer the world to seeing that I had tremendous potential because one person took one moment to communicate specifically with me and to show me something about myself that I'd never seen before. And so I think we need to stop thinking that it is about the class and that it is about the school and that it is about the system. It's simply about relationships. And as an administrator, you can. Show your teachers that they're individuals that matter and you can appreciate their unique contributions and you can help them see their potential. As a teacher, take five minutes to sit a student down and say, hey, you're always goofing around and you have a lot of energy and I just wanna let you know that people with a lot of energy go on to do amazing things in this world. People with a lot of energy become athletes. People with a lot of energy start businesses. People who have a lot of ideas and are constantly moving in different directions can make a huge difference in this world. And let me tell you this story about this famous or successful person who's just like you and tell you that you have the potential to do the same. It's kind of like your story. You have anxiety. Let me tell you about a person with anxiety who's gone on to be very successful. It doesn't have to be changing the classroom. It doesn't have to be changing the test structure. It doesn't have to be changing even how you teach that particular person. Sometimes people just need us to sit down with them and tell them that we see something that no one else sees, that we value something that nobody else values. One of my favorite quotes that I use as sort of my personal mission statement and I use in all my talks is from E.E. Cummings. And he says, we do not believe in ourselves until someone reveals that deep inside of us something is valuable, worth listening to, worthy of our trust, sacred to our touch. And so what I try to do and what I think all educators can do, and when I speak to educators, this is what I encourage them to do, is to be that person who reveals to other people that deep inside of them something is valuable. And to see that usually that thing is valuable is the thing that everyone sees as the most worthless thing about them, that it's the ADHD, it's the autism, it's the anxiety, it's the OCD, it's the dyslexia, it's whatever that happens to be that not only isn't the most worthless thing about them, it's the most valuable thing about them. It's worth listening to. It's worthy of our trust, sacred to our touch. And I think even just that one moment, I think even just that one time connecting with people has more potential than we think it does. And so I don't expect teachers to change the entire system. I don't expect administrators to change the entire system. But I do think we can look for moments where we start to take steps towards communicating this, seeing people differently and treating them differently, even if it's just in a small way within the system that we're stuck inside. But I do think it also then takes courage and that's what leadership is, to create new systems, to fight against the system, to resist the current ways of doing things and to create alternatives. And there's a lot of great examples out there. There's Khan Academy. I just listened to an audio book called Dark Horse, where he talks about this program out in the Northwest called Summit Schools, where they've created charter schools with totally different approaches. There's Southern New Hampshire University who now evaluates people and teaches people in a totally self-paced environment and evaluates people on completely different standards than traditional higher education. So if you're not happy with the system that you're trapped in, go join one of those systems that's trying to change things and be part of the solution. Don't allow yourself to be stuck. Join forces with the people who are trying to turn things around and do things differently.
1: And to bring parents along as well.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that's a big part. One of my friends, they sent their son to school and the teacher said, your son has oppositional defiant disorder and he's probably intellectually disabled and -hmm. he needs to get tested. And they took him in for testing and they were very worried about the results, and it turned out he had a genius-level IQ. There was nothing wrong with him. There was something very, very right with him. And Mm so, oftentimes, we can go both ways. Either parents can be convinced something's wrong, Mm -hmm. and they try to get the teacher on board with some kind of diagnosis or verifying some kind of problem, or teachers, Are frustrated with a student's behavior or lack of conformity and so they're the one who refers to the psychologist or the counselor and decides there's something wrong with somebody and so I just spoke to a guy in Sydney Australia who had seen me speak in Chicago and he was there with his wife and he said "Uh, I have dyslexia my son has dyslexia and after hearing your talk we totally changed our approach with our son Mm. and it's changed our lives and I can't thank you enough
1: Hey leaders, stay tuned for the rest of the interview following this brief message. If you haven't downloaded your copy of the Master Leadership Journal, go to masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ to get instant access and begin growing your leadership with questions that have been curated by top level leaders. I've also included some cool extras for you at masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ.
0: doesn't matter who I'm talking to. One of the ways that I prove that weaknesses can also be strengths. It's kind of like the examples you started with. I give four or five examples of how people with dyslexia have turned into billionaires and been phenomenally successful. And they credit their dyslexia with helping them succeed, not fixing their dyslexia with helping them succeed. So I show that people succeed because of their weaknesses, not in spite of them. And so that gave those parents hope. And too often, we're so good at telling people what's wrong with their kids, of finding the weaknesses, finding the problems, finding the place in which their kid doesn't stack up. And that's especially what happens with special needs, right? The whole focus of special needs is what's wrong with your kid. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that I learned trying to find employment opportunities for people with special needs was there's only two things that matters. What does the person like and what are they good at? It's actually really, really easy to find what's wrong with somebody. It's really, really easy to find the abnormal, unusual, problematic, difficult things of somebody. It actually takes a little bit of skill and a little bit of effort and a little bit of insight to discover what's good about that person, what they enjoy, what still is there despite all of the things that are missing. And I think ultimately that's all that matters, but we get so focused on remediation, even sometimes positive things like mainstreaming, but. Why should anybody be in the mainstream? And why is the goal of this child to have academic success? Isn't the goal to have life success? And if they don't have those academic abilities, why don't we start teaching those life skills and focus more on those and help the person actually live a meaningful life instead of defining who they are forever as their deviation from normal people. And so I think even in our efforts to give people dignity, we oftentimes ensure that they won't have that because we constantly want to compare them to the normal kid, the normal school experience, what normal people do. And so autism, we focus on that people have repetitive behaviors and that they have hyper-focus and they don't want to move from task to task. And so we try to put them in therapy and counseling and we try to fix them. And instead, there's a guy named Thorkil San, his son had autism, and he actually started a business for his son because he noticed that software testers need hyper focus, and they need to do the same things over and over again. And so instead of that being a weakness and a flaw in their humanity, he Mm -hmm. saw that it was actually a huge strength in the right situation. And so he actually created a business. They've now hired 50 people with autism and they've been so successful that a global software company called SAP is now looking for hundreds of people with autism to do software testing for them. And so even our goals to help Even when we do care about people, the goal is still directed towards normality and towards being like everyone else instead of uniqueness. And I think that's one of the other things that I really change. And that goes back to goals. Is the goal uniqueness? or is the goal to get somebody to read like other people and do math like other people and study like other people and behave like other people and even interact like other people i mean there's so many people who prefer to be alone there's so many people who prefer to be quiet there's so many people who prefer solitude and peace and relaxation and Mm -hmm. yet when a child's disability means a lack of social skills We act as though the rest of their life will be destroyed by their inability or lack of desire to interact with other people when there's plenty of fully functioning adults who have the same perspective and the same desires. So I really think that that's something that has to change. The goal isn't to make people normal, to make them the same. It's to help them become who they are and find their role in a society that has a spot for everyone and that those spots are very, very unique and very different.
1: So well said. Thank you. So, David, can you tell us about what it means to you to have a good team and how do you build one?
0: The quote I use in my talk is from Peter Drucker. He said, organizations exist to make people's strengths effective and their weaknesses irrelevant. And I think a good team is one that makes each member's strengths effective and their weaknesses irrelevant a team is a group of people who partner with people who are strong or they're weak, who have what they're missing, not a group of people who have similar abilities and similar interests and similar goals and similar strengths and similar weaknesses. And that's just a collection of people. I think the greatest teams are people with unique abilities and who each fill in for each other's deficits where no one is the same and no one is better or worse, but everyone completes The group, everyone provides something unique and valuable to what the group's trying to accomplish. One of the mistakes we make with teams and trying to create teams is we oftentimes try to get people just like us because we think we're good and it would be good to have other people like us. And we don't value that diversity. We don't value that uniqueness. And we're not looking to have a wide variety of people with a wide variety of skills and interests. So I think a team is people who are different from you, who enjoy things that are different than what you enjoy and who offer something, bring something to the table that you don't. And you have no intention of bringing because you don't need to because you have them and together you can accomplish whatever you need to accomplish. You don't need to have everything within yourself.
1: Great. Thank you. Now You touched on this, but can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it shaped your life?
0: Yeah, well, I think I talked about losing my friend. What I would say the biggest challenge for me was sort of bigger than that. It was the challenge of being told my whole life that I was worthless, that I wasn't Mm -hmm. going to succeed, that I was obnoxious and rebellious and inappropriate, and I had no self-discipline and no self-control and was probably going to end up homeless, and I was rebellious and couldn't handle authority and needed to learn to listen and had too much energy and was hyperactive and needed to sit still and be quiet and do what I was told. And when your parents tell you that, my parents called me motor mouth and their goal was to get me to sit still and be quiet and do what I was told. And they would just reinforce the negative feedback I'd get at school. And when I got in trouble at school, you know, I'd get in trouble with them. And so the teachers didn't like me and my parents were frustrated with me. And when every day of your life and every situation you encounter is telling you that you don't have anything to offer and that you have these fundamental flaws, and if you can't fix them, you're never going to succeed, it starts to sink in. You know, George Eliot said is somewhat of a paraphrase, but she basically said, we begin to believe what the world believes about us. And when you've been told that so often, it affects you. And so... Uh, For the longest time, my goal was to sit still, be quiet, and do what I was told. My goal was to push down my impulses. It was to not do what I would intuitively want to do. It was to not be myself. It was to conform and fit in and do what I was supposed to do and dress like other people and act like other people and care to an extreme degree what other people thought of me and allow other people's judgments of me to determine my behavior. And I think my biggest challenge was to see that all of that wasn't true and that my weaknesses were strengths and that I wasn't broken and damaged and that I could trust myself and be myself and that it was okay to stand out and be unique and that I did have something special to offer and that success wasn't going to come by being like everyone else and acting like everyone else and following the rules of mainstream society. And that was a huge challenge. And it's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about what I do now because I wish more people could hear that at a younger age. I wish more parents could hear it. And teachers could hear it, and managers could hear it, but especially that more kids could hear it, that kids could find out at a much younger age that the stories they're hearing in school and at home oftentimes are incorrect, that Mm -hmm. the things that we get taught from society about conformity and about even what good qualities are, and about where you can use those qualities, and about what smart means, and about what good is that those things are much more fluid than we've been taught to believe. That was the biggest challenge that I confronted and I accidentally sort of discovered on my own that my weaknesses were strengths. Again, I never learned it in any of the education that I studied. When I discovered it on my own, and was able to transform my life that was the biggest challenge that I faced and the biggest challenge that I overcame and now that I've overcome it to some extent although I'm always kind of looking for ways to take it farther that's why I'm so motivated to help other people learn the same lessons and see the same thing and see that truth which is really the opposite of everything that we're taught at home and at school at work in our society and so overcoming that challenge is where my passion comes from because it's made my life so much better And it's made me so much happier, so much more fulfilled. I mean, it's improved my relationships with my wife and my relationships with my children and my career success that I want that same thing for other people going back to wanting to be helpful. I don't just want to sit back and go, good, I'm all set now. I want to say, okay, that was life changing. That was transformational. How do I share this message with more people?
1: And you know, your message is really powerful. I'm sitting here completely convicted. I'm an educator. I'm also a parent of a child with ADHD. And I've done some of the things your parents have done. And we've certainly supported my son. We certainly have looked at a lot of his strengths and have been trying to work with teachers. And it's been a journey. I could say that he has certainly primed a lot of my leadership and continues to at the age of 16, right? It's a tough age. But how can I be the best support for my son?
0: Uh, One of the things I want to say, and I say this in my talks, is that there's a difference between intentions and the frameworks that we have. And so I think my teachers had the right intentions. They were trying to help me. My parents had the right intentions. They were trying to help me. We've just all been taught a framework that help means finding what's wrong and fixing it, right? And so I think what I would tell you and really any parents is to find those strengths that are hiding inside of the weaknesses that's why I created the assessment but it's not hard I mean as soon as people see that it's possible that a weakness could also be a strength they find it everywhere by the way for you I mean one thing I would tell you is there's a book called faster than normal by a guy named Peter Shankman he's actually in New York he's a fantastic guy and he's been a very successful entrepreneur and he wrote a whole book called faster than normal about how ADD is a superpower So I think one thing we can do for kids is, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, is give them role models that have their same diagnosis. I mean, in fact, that's one of the things he said in his book is you can't keep calling this a diagnosis because there's nothing wrong with having ADHD. It makes you better than most people. That's why he calls his book faster than normal. So mm-hmm. for people to have role models that have dyslexia, that have autism, that have ADHD, I mean, that movie about Temple Grandin, the story about the success that people have at earn in Denmark doing software testing with autism. I think what we need to do is give our kids role models, not where we say, here's what normal successful people look like. It's where, we say, here's what people who have ADHD have been able to accomplish,
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: you have that same potential, and let's talk about how you can uniquely move towards that. Being a person who, again, you can't always change the school system, you can't change a lot of things about the way the world works, but being at least one voice that dissents with the rest of the voices that say that your child is broken, or damaged, or disabled, or less than or abnormal to say that you believe that they're fantastic and that you see their potential, just that can be powerful. The other thing is besides finding role models and pointing out how their weaknesses can also be strengths, the other part is to help them find the right environments. I mean, look at thork hillson he built a whole business for his son. That's a big step, right? So instead of saying, well, this is just the school system, what if you take your kid out of the school system? What if you homeschool your child? What if you put your kid into an alternative school system There's a great school that I got to speak at in Houston called the Joy School. And when kids are struggling in school because of dyslexia, ADHD, autism, they go to the Joy School, where classes are one to eight teacher to child ratios. And the school works with them as individuals to help them figure out their unique approach to learning, to help them catch up on the things they've fallen behind on because they haven't been getting personalized attention. And then they help them find the right fit as they go back into the school system and find school. And environments that are specifically adapted to who they are as a person. So I think we have to be willing to look for. My middle daughter skipped a grade in first grade and then also now does online school from home because that's the right fit for who she is. So if we're willing to help our unconventional child, and I think every child is unconventional to have an unconventional experience, then I think that sets the right tone as well. Instead of our child constantly getting the message that our goal is to help them do things the way normal kids do things, the way everyone else does things, and to measure them the way everyone else is measured. So Mm -hmm. I think they need role models, Um, We need to show them what the upside is. So, for example, in my book, there's that assessment that shows people how their weaknesses can also be strengths. But there's also a section where I pull from a book on ADHD where there is a list of 12 weaknesses of specifically people with ADHD and the corresponding strength. So it's that concrete, and ADHD is that much of a good example. I speak to tons of entrepreneurs. Just in March, I spoke to this group called Entrepreneurs Organization. They have chapters all over the world. And I spoke to entrepreneurs in Dublin, and in Paris, and in London, and in Amman, Jordan, and in Cairo, Egypt. And the number of entrepreneurs with ADHD, the number of entrepreneurs with dyslexia, the number of entrepreneurs who struggled in school, and yet they're phenomenally successful. So we need to help our kids see the strengths, see those role models, just like we have sports heroes, have them have success heroes. One book I'd recommend to all of your listeners is called The Power of Different. Each chapter is about a different class, a different category of psychological disorder. So like attention disorders, anxiety disorders. The author's name is Gail Saltz, S-A-L-T-Z. She doesn't spend a lot of time on the weaknesses. We know what the weaknesses are. We don't need more diagnosis. So she focuses on what's the upside of having that particular class of disability and then just like you did at the beginning and I've done along the way, then she gives examples of phenomenally successful people, not necessarily like famous people, but like a biologist who's made amazing discoveries and accomplished amazing things who has this disability. There's showing the strength that goes with the weakness. There's your role model. And then it's even powerful because she's interviewed some of these people And she asked them, if you could take a pill that would fix your disability, would you Mm -hmm. take it? And except for disorders in the schizophrenia range, not a single person said that they would take a pill that would fix their disability. Mm -hmm. They recognize what I've been talking about, that the weakness is also a strength, that the disability is also an ability, not in some rose-colored glasses kind of way, but that it is simply a different way of looking at and experiencing the world. And we just don't measure it in school. And we just don't measure it using our traditional means. And so we see these people as damaged, as less than, as broken. Even when we try to give them dignity, our goal is still to bring them back towards normal instead of allowing them to truly be themselves and helping them to see how to create the best life for themselves, not how to fit into the systems we've created. And so Mm -hmm. that's a phenomenal book. Those are some of the things that I would recommend.
1: Thank you so much for that. Now, I can download the assessment from your website, correct?
0: Yep. And in fact, we create a special page for this interview. And so when people go to that link, and we'll make sure you have that so you can connect it to the podcast, the assessment will be there, a link to the video will be there, the books will be there, all those things will be on that page all in one spot.
1: Perfect. So Dave, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you? And what are you learning now?
0: I love it. I just used this the other day that you don't need a four-year degree, you need a 40-year degree. (laughs) And so one of the things that means to me is always having a book on my phone from audible.com I just finished a book called Dark Horse, which is Mm -hmm. another great recommendation, definitely relevant to the education environment. He talks about how so many people have succeeded using unconventional methods and that oftentimes our traditional approaches to educating people don't match the unique needs and potential of people and how we standardize everything when we basically need to personalize everything. And that keeps me inspired, but it also gives me new information, new ideas to share with People and it challenges me, challenges my preconceptions. It challenges the knowledge that I think I already have. It gives me perspectives. And in this case, it really affirms my perspective and gives me more information and more support to help people in more ways. Continuous learning means exactly that. But not just that. I think also it has to be related to who you are. So if you don't like to read, then don't read. Listen to audiobooks. If you don't like to listen to audiobooks, go to training sessions. If you don't want to go to training sessions, get formal education. If you don't want to get formal education, be a person who's constantly learning by just listening to other people and asking questions and being open to what they have to say. One of my favorite quotes is from Gandhi. He says, live as if you were to die tomorrow, but learn as if you were to live forever. And we are even living longer. So just thinking, oh, you know, it's you know, it's got to make it to retirement. My grandparents were born in 1920, and yet they lived to be 95. And so we're living much, much longer. We're living active, functioning lives much, much longer. And we have to keep learning for our entire lifetime and keep growing through our entire life especially if we're an educator how can we be teaching other people if we've stopped learning on our own and we're just rolling out the same information that we've been sharing for years we're not refreshing it we're not updating it we're not challenging it we're not critically examining it we're just doing the same things over and over and over again And it goes back to modeling the way we have to be role models of what we expect
1: right as educators and as leaders absolutely so thank you so much for that Now, Dave, you have a lot of responsibilities. What do you do on a daily basis to
0: set your mind? Unfortunately, I don't do it as much as I should on sort of a daily basis. What I do when I'm at my best is before I even got out of bed, I work through a time of sort of prayer and meditation where I start the day deliberately and focused on the people that I love and care about and am concerned about. And then before I get out of bed and after I've done that, I take 15 minutes to read and then I try to get some exercise. I do Ironmans and ultramarathons. And Mm. one of my favorite things to do is get outside, get on a trail, get out into the woods be out in the sunshine and be out in nature. So I think those are the ways that I try to keep myself. But I think also even learning, like even when I'm in the car, like this morning at a 30 minute drive to a client and a 30 minute drive back, listening to that audiobook keeps me focused again on those things I can control, learning things about right. how to make my life better, how to influence other people instead of just maybe zoning out to some music or instead of focusing on the news and things I can't do anything about. It's me taking control of my life and challenging my mind. I've probably listened to 20 books this year already and read 20 books this year. And so I think learning is definitely a big part of how I keep myself centered and how I manage myself. Yeah.
1: Great. Now, if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership?
0: Yeah, it's a combination of the things we've talked about that everyone's not the same and you don't need to be Mm -hmm. either. So I think one of my mistakes was I tried to be better than the people who led me by not being authoritative and by not being intimidating and by not being critical and negative. But then I went too far in the opposite direction, right? I didn't Mm -hmm. treat people as individuals. Although I gave them room to be individuals, I didn't recognize that what some individuals want is the opposite of what I wanted. Mm -hmm. And that I needed to give them what they needed instead of just reacting to what I'd experienced. And so what I would tell my younger self is treat everyone like an individual. Uh, Tap into their unique strengths and weaknesses and create and help them find environments that match who they are and to provide people with what they need to be successful.
1: Now, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners?
0: It's maybe back to what you said about the way you were feeling. I think you said the word convicted. One thing that I haven't been able to do here that I do in my speeches is I use a lot of humor and it gives people the sense that I'm not pointing my finger at them, that I'm not Mm -hmm. criticizing them. And I'm not, you know, it even goes back to my own parents. I bought them a house with the money that I make as a professional speaker, and I joke that they don't call me motormouth anymore, right? They, they, remember, <laughs> they remember it all differently now. But that's an important thing. I'm not in therapy because of my parents. I bought my parents a house. I'm not bitter about my parents. I bought my parents a house. Mm-hmm. And that's because I can see the difference between intentions and actions. And so what I try to teach people in all my talks, because I had intensely bad school experiences. And yet I speak to a lot of teachers and administrators. And if it seems like I'm up there talking about how terrible teachers are and how terrible school is and how terrible administrators are, that can be very off-putting. And it doesn't come across that way because first of all, I use the humor. But second of all, I remind people that I think everyone that I encountered had the right intentions. They just had the wrong framework. They were teaching me with their parents and their teachers and their employers had taught them. They were just trying to help me using the framework that we've all been taught. And so that's what I would wanna leave people with is that I'm not criticizing anyone. I'm not trying to put anyone down. We all are doing the best we can with the information we have. And what I'm trying to do is share some new information that gives people a better framework to pair with their proper intentions and to use those to do a better job of helping their kids, helping their students, helping their employees. I use this every day. I mean, I'm constantly convicted in my own parenting and I'm constantly also putting this to the test in my own parenting and in my own work and in my own life. So my goal is to hopefully just give people tools to take those good intentions that they have and then have a better framework that makes it more likely that they can create the results that they were trying to create.
1: So as what you said, your mission is to be hilarious and helpful. Perfect. Dave, this has been such a great conversation. And I want to thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners.
0: Yeah, thank you. This was exciting. I mean, one of the things that I get excited about is when you can talk to educators, they have an influence on so many people that that's really an opportunity for influence. And that's what leadership is. So I hope that the people who hear this, they have the chance to influence so many students, so many people on a daily basis. That's what makes this extra special.
1: Yes. Thank you. Have an amazing day.
0: All right. Thank you very much.
1: Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.